Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Will Tarashuk, the founder of Ambiguous Podcast Solutions, and I am doing something a little bit different today. Um, I am speaking to Madam uh, Sela Ward, who is a very, very important guest, I think, that I'm very excited to talk to. She is a former attorney, international business architect, and the organizer of the March for Women's Lives, which was the largest march in the history of the United States. So, uh, Madam, thank you so much for being here, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, thank you for having me. I'm excited. I'm excited to be here. And you also did a TED Talk, and please forgive me, I have to steal a line from it, but you say you went from the pole to the poet, from the poet to the activist, from the activist to the courtroom, and from the courtroom to the boardroom. Now, that is an amazing story, and we will link down to your TED Talk in the no- in description down below. So please, go and check out her TED Talk about leadership and diversity. But I guess, tell me your story. Who are you, and how did you get to where you are today? Start from the beginning, wherever that means to you. Oh, my God. So that's, a, <laughs> that's, a, that's such a loaded question. Uh, so now, right now, I'll start from where I am, and then we can um, kind of skip to the back. Um, but where I am today, I, I'm a business architect in Atlanta, Georgia. I have one of the largest business architect firms here in the Southeast, uh, and we help uh, entrepreneurs and small business owners scale from um, small business to enterprise level. So before that, however, I was an attorney. I was going on an attorney for a decade. I did business bankruptcy um, and criminal law. Um, I helped to free over 300 years of black lives from the prison industrial complex. Mm-hmm. And like you said, I did uh, do some work for the National Organization for Women as well. So I've been pretty much a professional troublemaker over the years. And I'm still a professional troublemaker to some degree. Um, but it didn't always start that way. It really started on an entirely different different level. I, I started out um, in, in communities that had uh, crack houses and where people were on corner blocks. And, and that's where my journey actually created a change in who I was going to be um, in my divine purpose. So yeah, that's just a little bit of it. All right. So you use the term troublemaker. I'm going to use the term disruptor because I think of just one thing this society really needs right now with everything going on in the world as of recording this in early 2021, what we need, what the society needs is a disruptor. So tell me about your life as an attorney. You you mostly represented black clients and you saved them from over 300 years of time in prison. So like what kind of, what kind of cases were these? Because, you know, if you want to reduce crime um, and prison time, to me, the biggest thing you got to do is end the drug war. So these were, were these a lot of cases you've seen or they were they a wide variety? There were a wide variety of cases, but I did have um, an incredible sensitivity to the drug war that was happening because the drug war kind of, you know, I saw that in my community directly. Um, in my community, you know, we weren't allowed to call um, people that were addicted to crack cocaine, crack addicts or crackheads. We called them rock stars mm. um, because, as you know, a lot of times um, the people that were addicted to crack cocaine were people that were um, who where crack cocaine were, was put in our communities um, to be able to disenfranchise powerful people of color. So we called the people that were surviving crack cocaine addiction, we called them rock stars. And one of those rock stars happened to be um, my mother growing up, which is, you know, when my journey took a really, really huge turn when I was younger. Um, When I was 11 years old, my mother was actually shot in a crack cocaine deal uh, that went bad. 
So she ended up being paralyzed for several years afterwards. I actually remember cleaning the wounds of my mom when she couldn't get out of bed when I was about 11 years old. So that was kind of the the biggest event in my youth that kind of turned my life um, to a different direction. But it also gave me the resilience to be able to pull myself out of it as well. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that's so, so how did you how did you like over overcome all that to have such a a a a stacked career like you have a very wide a wide resume you probably have multiple resumes um how how like how did you i don't want you to turn pick yourself up by your bootstraps but how did you literally pick yourself up by your bootstraps and just overcome man 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 i i'm pretty sure i know that most of my resilience came from growing up in rock star communities. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm definitely a hundred percent sure. You know, one of the things that, that I remember growing up is that, you know, we would have people um, that would come and they would always ask you for $5. My uncle, my aunties, my mom, everybody, they would ask you for $5. These were people, um, these were some of the rock stars. And, you know, of course, the first time they asked you for dollars and five dollars, you'd be like, no, I'm, you know, leave me alone. I ain't got to go away. And they would come back like the next day, like you never told them no the first time and asked you for $5 again, like it was the first time. And you'd be like, dude, I just told you no. What, what's going on? Right. No, I'm not, I don't have $5. And they would, you know, go away and they would come back again on the third day, like you never told them no. And they would keep coming back until finally you were like, you know what, look, man, here's $5. Go away. Don't ask me again. Take it. And I, I was able to see that. I saw that resilience growing up in, in, in my own community. And I knew that if they came from a community where people already judged them, people thought that they were um, the bottom of the barrel, um, that I, I didn't have to be afraid of no either. You know, I didn't have to be afraid um, of, of rejection. I didn't have to be afraid of judgment because I'm going to let you know that I had a lot of no's very early on, especially because I came from a sex work industry, especially because I had a criminal background, especially because uh, the people that I associated with were rock stars um, for the majority of the early part of my life. So I had a lot of no's, especially when I was going to law school, when Mm -hmm. I got out of law school, when I was trying to get licensed, I had to go in front of an ethics board. I had to stand in front of attorney regulation and and prove to them that, um, that I was ethically competent enough to be able to um, practice law. And they told me, they told me no a thousand times. I heard it so many times, but I couldn't be afraid of that. You know, I, I, I knew that when, when, when somebody says no to you, what really they're trying to say is that they don't understand the offer that you are putting on the table for them. So I had to become um, a master that my superpower was being able to reframe things and to be able to reframe my offer. So I became comfortable with reframing my off my offer anytime somebody told me no. Um, and that's that's really what what pushed me is because I had so many people in my life that just weren't afraid afraid of that rejection. The other thing is that you know the the rock stars in my life was always uh, comfortable with with saying yes. They weren't afraid of hearing no, and they were comfortable with saying yes. And, and that comfort with saying yes had to come from um, not necessarily knowing like how you were going to fulfill the yes, not necessarily knowing you know what was going to happen in the future, but just having faith. I my mom. You know, she would make Christmas happen by any means necessary. And a lot of times it came from, you know, people that was in our rock star community that, you know, they would come along. My uncle was the person that they called the meat man. Right. And the meat man was the man that would go you know, from house to house to house. And he would have any 
meat that you wanted, right? But he didn't have just have meats. He could get anything that you want um, at, at, a, at a price that um, um, most communities, you know, would be able to afford because there were certain things that we just couldn't get. So he would come and he said, hey, you know, I got this meat, I got that meat, I got this, this, and this. And, you know, we knew that that was kind of like Thanksgiving when the meat man came. But in addition to that, you know, the parents and, and the adults of the house, they were always hey, you know, I, I'm trying to get a bike for my son for Christmas. Can you get it? And they'd be like, yeah, I'll make it happen. And he would come back the next day with a bike, you know, or they'd be like, hey, you know, I need to get, you know, uh, a hoverboard, you know, for my kids. And they'd be like, oh, give me a couple of days, you know, and they would come back a couple of days with a hoverboard. So whatever you want, wanted, they were willing to say yes, even if they didn't know how it was going to come. I mean, you could come and say, hey, you know, my, my aunt needs a heart, <laughs> you know, you know where I can get that. And they'd be like, give me like 30 days and I got you, <laughs> you know, so they had um, the the ability to be open to any opportunity that was coming to them and being willing to say yes to opportunities, even if uh, you didn't know how you was going to make it happen. So I really do believe that it was the combination of not being afraid of no and always being open to saying yes that really pushed me to be able to overcome some of the obstacles I had to overcome in order to even be able to practice law. Mm-hmm. And, and where did you, you grow up, a part of the country? I grew up in North Carolina. I was born in North Carolina um, in a little town called Waterwake Wilson, right? And they called it Waterwake because there were so many crack addicts that was in the town, in the town, and they would stay up all night long. You could go outside at three or four o'clock in the morning in certain communities, and you would see crackheads or crack addicts or rock stars, as we called them, hanging outside or drug dealers. There was always people awake. All right. So mm-hmm. I, I grew up in North Carolina and Waterwake Woods. Then I went to undergraduate school in North Carolina, uh, North Carolina Central University. I'm an Eagle, Eagle Pride, HBCU Pride here. And then for um, law school, I went to the University of Denver, the Harvard of the West is, is what they call it. So I've been in different parts of the country uh, and got a few different experiences. And do you still work with rock stars? You know, one of the things that um, that was really important to me, like I have a program now. Um, that that we where we work with people that have either been uh, addicted to crack cocaine, they've been mm-hmm. a part of the prison industrial complex, or they were part of uh, the sex work industry. And it's called from corner blocks to corner offices. Um, one thing that I learned a lot of times is that uh, rock stars, um, drug dealers, sex workers are some of the most resilient people in the world. And they really have a lot of know-how when it comes um, to, to being able to operate a business. They just don't have the tools to create an enterprise. Right. So in our program that we call from, from corner blocks to corner offices, we help people in that community to be able to build businesses and to be able to get out of a criminal lifestyle. Now, this, this, were there any systemic challenges being being a, a lawyer defending these clients, what I mean by that, like any systemic hurdles you have to overcome because the prison industrial complex, I mean, if you want to talk about systemic racism in this country, I think that's one of the first places you look. And you do mention that in your TED talk, which we're going to get into in just a few minutes. But like as, as a lawyer defending these clients, was there any systemic problems that you ran into, any challenges you faced with these cases? Oh, there was always challenges. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, but like, it's like, like, like more, like more than like, say, if you were defending, like, if, if your client was white or if you're defending like, 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 like a speeding ticket or something like that, something, something, I mean, obviously there's challenges with any, any case, but any like systemic challenges. 
you know, we, we handle cases from traffic to, you know, hard cases, home invasion, robberies, burglaries, drug cases. So we, we handle a large variety of cases. And yes, and we grew up in a community and I practiced in a community where there were only 300 attorneys, mm. 300 black attorneys, 300 black attorneys, period. Um, there were quite a few um, attorneys of different of different races, but there were about 300 black attorneys in the entire state. So a lot of times um, there wasn't people that looked like the people that were actually a part of um, the cases um, that they were in. So myself and my partner at the time, we were one of the very few black female attorneys in the area um, that were out there to ride for people that were going through the prison industrial complex, people that looked like us, people that were rock stars, people that were disenfranchised or people um, that were that were victims of or victors of police brutality. Um, so definitely, I would say there was there were several, uh, several challenges um, in the prison industrial complex, several things that was systematic. I remember um, there was one case uh, that me and my, my partner we're working on. And this was very, very early in the process where we knew that the uh, alleged victim in the case was racially profiling our client. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a, it was, it was a minor robbery where um, the, the alleged victim said that somebody came and, and took her, I think they took a phone and a purse. I can't remember if it was, you know, it was something small though. Um, and then they read, they snatched it, they came and then they ran. So she didn't really uh, get a good look at the person that had robbed her. So, of course, you know, because it was a person of color, the, the main thing that she said was that it was our client. But we knew for a fact, we knew, absolutely knew that she didn't really know who robbed her. All she knew was that there was a person of color that robbed her. So at the time, what we did, um, well, in, in particular, my partner, she was one of the geniuses in this case. Um, we put another defendant at the table, right, to show uh, that this particular um, victim did not know uh, who robbed her and that she was just racially profiling. And this was in front of a jury trial at the time. So, of course, when the prosecution was like, okay, well, can you point out the person um, that robbed you on X, Y, and Z date? Of course, she pointed at the person that was sitting at the table, right. um, at the defense table. And, you know, my partner, she, she was she's very she was very much, you know, into uh, grandioso presentation. So, of course, that was her opportunity to be like, look, you know, see, we told you. The person at the table is not even the defendant. The defendant is sitting in the back of the room. However, this alleged victim just pointed out the person at the table because she is comfortable with pointing out any black man um, and saying that that is the person that robbed her. So, of course, um, you know, because it was in front of a jury, the jury was like, yes, okay, it's racially profiling. Um, And we ended up getting all not guilties on on that particular case. And, you know, my partner, you know, she was very excited about it, but the judge was pissed off. Off. The judge was incredibly <laughs> upset. No, is, is that is that is that a, is that like is that like a uh oh or is it like a is a badge of honor that you was pissed off a judge or does it really depend on the case? Well, you know, she she got pissed off. Um, uh, she you know ended up filing a complaint. Um, she hell you know um, you know she uh, filed for contempt of court, fine, fine, jail time. <laughs> you know, it was it was crazy, but sometimes. Because the system is not created in a way that protects people from being racially profiled or discriminated against, um, the you know we it doesn't have always a, a clean cut way to be able to prove that black clients, that clients of color, um, are being put at a disadvantage. So sometimes, as attorneys, especially as black attorneys, when we know that this is happening, 
we had to take extreme measures just to be able to prove our client's innocence. Um, and sometimes that is at, that's, that's, that's at the sacrifice of, of, of our own profession. You know, we end up getting into contempt of court. We end up getting um, fines. We end up going to jail. We end up getting pissing off a whole lot of judges and pissing off a whole lot of police officers because we have to do what it takes to be able to get those not guilties when we know that our clients are being disenfranchised. So there were several cases. That was just one of, of many, but there were several cases when we had to go um, to extreme measures uh, to be able to make sure that we, we help our clients prove their innocence. It's like, hey, Your Honor, don't blame me. I'm just over here doing my job. Um, so <laughs> have you have you ever seen that judge since? Has has that judge ever presided over one of your cases since? Um, you know, honestly, like I had to see a lot of these judges multiple times. I mean, there was uh, one particular time where I was representing a client and I believe, I'm, I'm trying to think of uh, I can't remember what, what type of case it was, but I know that the client was looking at a lot of time when I say time, um, you know, o- over 10, 20 years. Um, but in, in, this, in this particular case, I kept telling um, the judge, we were working on this case for months and months and months and months. And I kept telling the, the district attorney as well as the judge that I did not believe that the uh, district attorney was giving us all um, of the evidence, right? Um, we called it discovery. That's what it's called in the legal system. So there's a process for being able to get all of the discovery, all of the evidence that the district attorney is presenting against your client. So we would go to their office, we would you know, file the paperwork to be able to get the discovery, and then we were supposed to either be able to pick it up or they would mail it to us. So in this particular case, I, I would go. I went to the district attorney's office to pick up the, pay, the, the discovery, which was, is supposed to include every piece of evidence that they have against your client. And I, you know, when I picked it up, it would be like, you know, it was like 25, 26, 27 pages. So in my head, I was like, this is a, this is a serious case. You know, this is, this is a high level offense. Like I know that they have to have more discovery when it's 25, 26 pages. They have to have more evidence to this. I don't even think that they will be charging him if this was all they had. Um, and so we, you know, we initially went to the district attorney saying, Hey, you know, we don't think you guys gave us all the discovery. And uh, they were like, you know, um, yeah, we gave you everything. What are you trying to accuse us of? Of course we gave you everything, you know. Um, went to the judge um, and was like, hey, we don't think we got all the discovery. And they was like, oh, you're just, you know, trying to waste the court time or you're just trying to hold things out or you just tried to extend this case. The district attorney told you they have everything. You have to respect that. You need to honor their word. You have everything, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe in this particular case, I remember um, there were over 20 different times over the course of the case that I, you know, put in writing or either, or either said on the record um, that we did not have all of the discovery. We didn't believe that we had all the discovery, but unfortunately we couldn't prove that because until you have all the discovery, you can't prove that you don't have everything until they actually present it. Um, so uh, we, we told the, jo- the judge multiple times um, and he ignored it because he just assumed that our client um, was guilty and he just wanted to postpone it because he knew he was guilty. Um, so, you know, it was set for trial. We was in trial. They called the jury um, into the courtroom. And and that particular day, you know, I saw the district attorney come in with boxes of what looked like discovery. And I'm, I'm looking at the boxes that they're bringing in and I'm looking at like the 25, 26, 27 pages that they gave us. You know, so, of course, I have to say. Um, Your Honor, and I had to do it in front of the jury at this time, because by then I had already 
told him either in writing or on the record over 20 times before that I didn't have, I didn't think I had all the discovery, but I couldn't prove it because we hadn't seen all the discovery. So, you know, I had already put it in, in writing so many times. So this time I just had to say it in front of the jury, your honor, you know, look at what the district attorney has, um, at, the, at their table right now. Look at the boxes and boxes and boxes of what looks to be discovery that they have at their table right now. Look what they have given us. I have asked you previous times things to make sure that we had all the discovery. We've said that we didn't have all the discovery. This is a situation where we obviously uh, don't have just all of the discovery and the judge was so pissed off, even that pissed off, so mad, so upset, right? Because now, because I said it in front of the jury, he couldn't proceed with the case. Um, and he had to have um, a, a hung trial. Um, and at the time he was so mad, um, he called, you know, he called us to the, the bench and, and he said, you know, I'm going to have a recess. He was like, well, why, why didn't you say this before? And I said, you know, I, I told you this over 20 times before, <laughs> but you, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> that our client had to be trying to postpone things, right? That that we had everything because the district attorney said that we had everything and that our client was just trying to postpone things, which meant that you had to assume that he was guilty and was trying to postpone being sentenced to, to prison, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we told we told you several times before he was so mad um, and he uh, he ended up, you know, calling a recess. Um, and then after he called the recess, like I, it, it was obvious, you know, when when judges know that there's something about to happen, they there's a, like a, a buzz that goes around the courtroom. So he called everybody, all the district attorneys, all the public defenders, every attorney that happened to be in that courthouse. Like I start seeing people pile up in the back of the room, like, oh my God, what is happening, right? So I could I could tell that he was really, really pissed off. And he really, um, you know, so when he called court back to session, he really, really uh, went at me. He really, he was so mad. Um, because he had to call a hung jury, which means that goes on the judge's file now. Um, and, you know, I had to, you know, sit there and argue with him and say, you know, judge, I, I told you this before, you know, like we, we told you this this many times before, um, but you, you didn't do anything about it. And honestly, this, I, I, I don't even think that this is by mistake. I think this is purposeful considering the number of times that we told you that we didn't think that we had all of the discovery. I think this is a violation of our clients, a purposeful violation of our clients' constitutional rights. And that that pissed the judge off even more at the time. And um, so he he fussed me out in front of everybody, which is one of the most <laughs> one of the most embarrassing things in the world. But he had to end up um, dismissing the jury and and and, and um, calling a, a hung jury, so he couldn't proceed with the case. And they found out after I brought it to them many many times that it was indeed true that the district attorney um, actually did not give us all of the discovery, which would have really really resulted in this client spending the rest of of his you know young, young age right. in jail. Going in prison. I can know? I can only imagine what your client was thinking while all this is happening. Like, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? What's happening? Oh yeah, he was like, I'm not sure. He was like, the judge is pissed off at you. I don't want him to be pissed off at me. So maybe you got everything. I don't know. <laughs> you know. So and it is it is really scary to a client. Right. It's very scary to a client because um, the client. A, a lot of people feel like, well, if somebody is innocent, then you know, they're just going to, you know, push it into the end. They're not going to admit to something that they never did. Right. Um, or, you know, why, why, why would they, you know, go along with the process if they know that they didn't do it? 
But when you are dealing with people who have been in the criminal industrial complex before and they know that the justice system doesn't work, there is no faith in believing that the justice system is going to turn out right just because you're innocent or just because you know that you didn't do something. You don't have any faith in that anymore. So a lot of times when you know that the system is working against you, even if you feel like the judge or the district attorney may be hiding evidence or plotting against you, a lot of times you know you say, you know what, I'm just I'm scared of pissing people off. I don't want to get on people's bad side. So maybe I should just take a plea arrangement. Right. You know, maybe I should just, you know, just try to, you know, cut my losses here. And that happens a lot of times in, in, in the court system. Unfortunately, it happens too many times. Well, I'm sure we could do a whole podcast series on just your stories as an attorney. But I do want to move on to your TED talk uh, on leadership and diversity in Madrid, Spain. So how did you how did you how did you come to? One, getting a TED Talk, because that's that's a, that's a thing on my bucket list. Get a TED Talk. I don't care if it's from three people or 300 people or 3,000 people. I want to be on a TED Talk one day talking about podcasting. But how did you um, get to be a guest on a TED Talk? Oh, my God. So that, that was a journey in itself as well. So I went to Barcelona, Spain, actually, first before I went to um, Madrid, Spain. And while I was in Bar- Barcelona, uh, I did another event where one of the students – at St. Louis University in Madrid heard me speak. And they were, you know, they were inspired by um, my story at the time. And they wanted me to really participate um, in in something in their school. So I believe they passed it on to their professors and then their professors um, reached out to me and said, you know, I want to put you in contact with uh, one of the um, TED organizers uh, here in Madrid. And that's kind of how that happened. But um, the journey is really interesting because uh, St. Louis University um, is actually a, a, a religious school. Like they have a religious background. So they're very conservative um, when it comes to the content that they have on campus and the, the keynote speakers and the events that they have um, on campus. So there were so many times where they were so afraid, like we had to to tailor the talk so many times because you know, there is a lot of history that originally that was, you know, in the keynote about my background as a sex worker um, before I became an attorney um, and before I became a business architect that we actually had to do a lot of editing to at the time. And uh, a lot of the organizers, they were so afraid that there was going to be kickback um, from from the TED Talk, from from some of the more um, conservative um people that that were a part of the school. So I I remember when I was flying down back to Madrid from the U.S. because I I went back from after Barcelona, even while I was on the plane, they they called me and um, I was about to board the plane and they were like, you know, I am so they said they was like, I'm still very nervous about presenting anything about sex work <laughs> in a TEDx speech. Um, and maybe it's like, maybe we should cancel this and try to test it out on another, on another platform first, because they were really, they were really concerned about the possible backlash. Um, but ironically and gratefully, it ended up being one of their most um, watched uh, events that they had um, in the entire history of, the, of their TED, uh, TED Talk experience. So it actually ended up being very positive, but there was a lot of very nervous moments in there where, was, where they were like, I don't, I don't know if we're going to be able to get this past um, our board. I don't know how people are going to respond about this conversation, but I, I, I do think ultimately 
it was a very needed conversation and it turned it out. It turned out to be a great experience. Oh yeah. No, a hundred percent. If someone goes, I don't know, we should talk about this. You go, no, 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 no. That is the perfect reason why that is the only reason why I should be talking about it is because you don't want me to talk about it. Because it's like, <laughs> that means it needs to be talked about. And what you talk about is PTSD, which is post-traumatic slave disorder. So I want to, I want you to elaborate on that, but also you throw out some statistics where 33% of prisoners are Hispanic and 40% are African-American. So tell me about post-traumatic slave disorder. Is that is that a is that an original term, or is, is that something you coined? Or is that something you you uh, got inspiration from? It's not something I coined. Actually, it was coined by um, Dr. Joy DeGruy. She does um, a very detailed, intense study on post-traumatic slave disorder, and it talks about um, the systematic oppression that people of color have experienced. Um, that passes down from generation to generation to generation. And a lot of times what happens is because we pass down certain traits and certain ideas um, that originated uh, during slavery that in today's society, in today's culture, we don't even realize where it came from anymore. We just know that we um, respond to certain incidences in certain ways and we feel like we are protecting our family. We feel like we're protecting uh, the people that we love. For, like, for example, um, one thing is that, you know, we, you know, during slavery as black women, a lot of times uh, we had to make sure that we protected our family. We saw mm-hmm. our significant others and our husbands being murdered and hung and lynched um, and and just tortured. And they would do it in front of us um, to install this fear in us um, so that we wouldn't get out of line. Not only would they do it in front of us, but they would do it in front of our children. Um, they would do it in front of everybody in the community. So a lot of times as black women, we ended up grow, um, teaching our children um, just to stay in line, to not to try to push the limits, um, to not question authority, just do what um, authority says, so that you can survive. And we did it then so that we can actually um, make sure that our children survived the the horrific experiences that they had to survive back then. But this was passed from generation to generation to generation. So, you know, we find, you know, centuries later um, that a lot of times as women of color, we are still trying to teach our children um, to, to blend in. We're teaching them not to be to resist it, not to go out and protest, not to make people mad, mm-hmm. following with the system, work for other people. Um, don't try to get your own business. We teach them a lot of things that we don't even understood. Um, we don't even understand where they came from. Um, right now, I deal with business architecture. And a lot of people that I deal with are entrepreneurs or people that are trying to start new businesses or people that are trying to scale um, their businesses to enterprise level. Um, And I deal with people of all different um, backgrounds. Um, But some of the people of color um, that I deal with, um, we we have these conversations about what entrepreneurship used to mean in our community. It actually, entrepreneur used to be a bad word. You know, it used to Mm. be, you know, unemployed. (laughs) You know, bum, you know, somebody that is relying on somebody else to take care of them. It was like a dirty word that we were we used to refer to people that just didn't have jobs. Um, it wasn't until recently the entrepreneur, the word entrepreneur, the, the term entrepreneur actually became positive in our communities. Um, and a lot of times we wonder where this comes from in communities of color, where we're constantly discouraging our children and our youth 
um, from owning and running their own businesses. We tell them, hey, you know, we're training them to just go and get a job, go and work for somebody else. You know, even to the point where um, if somebody is trying to start their business for too long, we'll tell them to go, you know what, you just need to go out and get a real job. You know, if they're trying to make their dream or their goals come true, just go out and get a real job. Um, not realize that even, you know, during, during um, slavery and post-slavery times, it was actually illegal for, for people of color, for black people or ex-slaves to start their own businesses. Mm-hmm. So we couldn't be open about our entrepreneurship because it can mean it could mean that we would actually um, be murdered or killed or they would come after us. Um, so, you know, we pass these traits on from generation to generation and not really know where they came from. But one of the biggest traits um, that, you know, really frustrates me um, is, is this idea that there can only be one successful um, person of color at the top or one successful woman at the top or one successful um, gay person at the top. Right. Uh, and that comes from um, this oppressed, this oppressed mentality as well. Uh, a lot of times what happens is that they teach us that, you know, only one person can survive. Only one person can be successful. So we start competing against each other and mm-hmm. tearing each other down. Mm-hmm. And now we see the result that, you know, the, the oppressors don't even have to oppress anymore because generationally we've been taught to oppress each other because we feel like if we don't oppress each other, then we are not going to be able to succeed. So we see so many disenfranchised communities today, today whether it be women, communities of color, you know, um, gay, lesbian community or whatever the case may be, we see, you know, each other going at each other and trying to tear each other down because we've been conditioned that we can't support each other. So we, we see so many different examples of post-traumatic slave disorder in today's society. And that's that's one of the things that I talked about um, in my TED Talk. So yes, yes, um, just to give you a background, I know I went on. <laughs> no, no, that's perfect. So it's it sounds to me like a lot of it is is past traumas that's still very relevant today. So that's more of it. But I would like there that that the, we still this still that those kind of in the communities, like I'll take Baltimore for example. Um, if you take like crime that crime sheets or rap sheets from people from the seventies, eighties in Baltimore and see the crimes that were committed at that time, you look at the look at them to today, they're the exact same, the exact same neighborhoods, the exact same communities, the exact same like profile of person who committed the crime. So it's not like it's all just a past issue. It's still something that's still relevant in these communities today. So you, you would know way better than me. How, talk to me about the, the struggle these communities have and how it really is just an endless cycle for these people who can't get out of these communities. And it's the same for like Chicago, Detroit, the South, Mississippi, even West Virginia with the white communities, the poor white communities. It's not, it's not even just a, um, a black issue, at least in the case mm-hmm. of poverty, but th- mm-hmm. those, these issues still exist today in 2021. They do. That's absolutely, that's absolutely correct. And and one of the places that I, I had to learn to overcome that was, was being in the sex work industry. Um, and when I say the sex work industry, or when I when I say call myself a, a former sex worker, people are always confused about that term. They're like, well, what exactly is that? And that's kind of just, you know, a political correct term for saying prostitute yeah. um, or somebody that exchanges uh, money for sex. But um, even, you know, even in, in, at that point in my life, it was still a challenge to try to overcome the post-traumatic slave disorder. And it wasn't just with people of color, even then, because post-traumatic slave disorder has expanded so um, exponentially 
that it affects almost everybody in the world now, right? People feel like slavery is, is the worst part of what um, the, the slave trade um, uh, caused, but the, the wave effect that, that it created is even larger. Uh, it affects more people than even the slave trade itself. Um, so, you know, we definitely saw it, you know, in the sex, in the sex worker community um, trying to make sure that we stuck together. I talked about that in my TED talk as well. You know, we we were kind of taught even there that we had to kind of fight against each other and that only one mm-hmm. person could make it. One person can be the star. One person can be the most loved. One person can be the prettiest. And we resisted that in most cases. Now, there were always, you know, some situations where girls would have their disputes within um, within their communities. But for the most part, we knew that if we didn't stick together, um, that we might not survive, that some of us was going to die. Some of us was not going to get home. Some of us was going to be uh, assaulted or abused, whether that was from clients or cops. You know, we knew that if we didn't stick together and we didn't have each other back and we didn't make sure that everybody had support, then then we might not come out alive. So I think a lot of it is just having these very important conversations um, within our communities to make sure that we're all united towards the same cause. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And we are going to talk more about um, systemic racism when we talk about Black Lives Matter and the, and the police and uh, diversity and all that. But I do, I definitely do want to touch upon um, the March for Women's Lives because to me, I think this is one of one of your crowning achievements, being one of the organizers for the Women's Lives uh, March, which is the largest in U.S. history. So mm-hmm. how did how did that come about? How did you organize this? And like, what does this accomplishment like you get you get you get to lay down in bed every, every night and go, oh, I did this and no one can take that away from me. So tell me about that, what it meant to you and how that came to be. Oh my goodness, that was that was definitely a journey too. I feel like I've had so many journeys um, through throughout life, but I'm grateful for them all. But I, I was very young at the time, and uh, of course, I, I was working for the National Organization for Women. The National Organization for Women is the largest women's organization in the world. But if anybody knows anything about the National Organization for Women, they also know that it's a very white organization. Um, the the demographic, the average demographic for the National Organization for Women is 55-year-old white women. Um, and at the time, I was a uh, young you know, black female, like in, in, in the very, in my very early age at that time, um, trying to get women of color and white women to get on the same page. There was this huge divide in movements um, where they, you know, some people called themselves feminists, some people called themselves womanists, some people didn't call themselves anything at all and didn't want to be associated with um, with the movement at all. Um, but at this point, we, we knew that we had to to make an impact in, in the country. We knew that we had to let the world know that we were not going to allow them to compromise women's rights. But the only way that we could do that is if we can get everybody on the same page. So I literally, we, we organized for about two years and we had we basically had to go around to almost every small city in the country and have conversations with very small groups until they became larger groups um, and, and encourage, you know, women of color um, as well as, you know, white women to get together and have conversations, the hard conversations um, so that we can get united on one accord. Um, and we had to have people that would come in and, and, and be sensitive to the conversation, people that were, that were not afraid to say um, the risky, you know, the risky things, not afraid to ask the risky questions. And just be open and honest with each other. So I, I think that the biggest 
the biggest tool that we used to be able to get everybody uh, to come to Washington was was just connecting. One of the biggest things that I remember um, hearing in the you know in the groups um, that we were having is that a lot of times white women felt like they couldn't have the conversation about racism. First of all, they felt like nobody in their communities um, would be interested in having those conversations because many times they were never surrounded by a lot of people of color. But even when they wanted to have those conversations, they felt like they were going to be automatically called racist, called racist simply because they wanted to have the conversation and they wanted to ask the question, like, for example, um, you know, a lot of times when people are referring to um, black women, they want to say people of color. Um, I use those those words very often. Sometimes I say women of color. Sometimes I say black women, but I don't use them interchangeably mm-hmm. uh, because they're different. Right. A lot of times when people are saying uh, women of color, what happens is that black women's issues or black people's issues, if we say people of color, are being overlooked. Um, and because, you know, they say women of color are people of color, it allows the world to kind of group us into this large group of people. And then our issues are never addressed in the long run. Um, also, a lot of times it, it, make, it, it gets around the discomfort of saying black, you know, that a lot of people have issues with or saying African-American. Um, so a lot of times what will happen is that, you know, white women's like, I don't even know like how to address, you know, this community because right. I'm afraid mm-hmm. if I say black, <laughs> you know, that people are all about going to be like, Oh my God, you said black, you're racist, right? Yeah. Let so, me tell you, as a, as a straight white male in his mid-20s, sometimes I don't know what to say. And yeah, it is a little uncomfortable, but you know what? It's got to be like, I, I'll, I'll, I typically do say black, but if someone corrects me and says, hey, can you say African-American? Sure, no problem. Or, or if I'm speaking to someone and they say African-American, I'll say African-American. This is on the same page. Right, right. The, and the, these are the conversations that we have to have. Um, these are the these are the things that really need to be brought to the table so that we can get comfortable with the, with each other, and and getting comfortable with somebody that doesn't look like you, and being okay with sometimes making mistakes because none of us are perfect. So we we went around the country, and myself and it was two other organizers at the time. Um, Lindsey Bond um, was one of them, and and Suzanne and uh, Lindsey Bond was. Uh, she was a, a woman of color as well. I think she might have been Asian and um, Latina. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, and Susan, she was Suzanne. She was Caucasian. Um, but we just went around. We went around the country for two years, having conversations small in, in small rooms about hard topics between white women and and when I say women of color in this instant, I mean women of color and not necessarily just black women having hard conversations until those small rooms became large rooms and getting us to get to the point where we might not necessarily agree on all the details, but we all knew we cared about women's rights. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to bring people to Washington because they all cared about women's rights. And we ended up um, being able to have 1.2 million people march on Washington um, that year. Uh, we had so many amazing uh, speakers. Um, um, Ellie Smeal, we had, you know, of course, like a lot of celebrities there. Um, uh, Clinton was there. I mean, it was so, it was beautiful. I remember standing on stage um, and I was so exhausted because uh, before the march, I, I stayed up for 72 hours you know, a little, a little less than 72 hours straight with no sleep, trying to get all the details 
um, of the march together, making sure that all the speakers were in order, like reaching out to all the people that was coming, you know, to make sure that they were still coming, to make sure that they had transportation to get from their local cities to Washington, D.C., to make sure that the buses were still working, um, to make sure that every, that people had food when they came to Washington, D.C., if they couldn't take care of that themselves, to make sure that people had a place to stay in Washington, D.C., if they couldn't take care of that themselves. So I ended up staying up for almost 72 hours straight the, the, the three days before the march. Mm-hmm. And I was delirious <laughs> by the time that I got to stage because I was so sleepy and tired and exhausted. But when I got on stage, I remember looking out and there was a sea of people. You know, there was a sea. You couldn't even see the end of all the people that were in the audience that had came to make sure that they stood up for women's rights. And, and I just knew even at, at that moment, I was like, okay, this is worth it. You know, this is just the beginning of the movement and it was all worth it as exhausted as I was. I couldn't even speak clearly. I was so tired, but I still felt like it was worth it. Yeah. And that's, and that's really, and that's really how change happens. Like we, like that, that, that March wasn't that long ago. And like th- those kind of movements, those kind of protests, those kinds of actions is what needs to happen because there was clear leadership behind it. There was a clear message behind it that everyone's on the same page, at least who was there. They might have not agreed 100% on everything. But they, again, like you said, they were all there in defense of women's rights. And now here we are, 2020, 2021 now, but you know, all of 2020 with all the protests, all the riots we saw last year, it really, it really is just a complete opposite. Now, I know you are heavily involved in the Black Lives Matter movement. And um, anyone who listens to me on my other podcast, You Mad Bro, which covers politics, knows I am very critical of the Black Lives Matter movement. I have, I, I think a lot of things they do are really good. I think a lot of things they do are really bad. But I want to know your involvement in the movement. And I'm hoping you can shed some light on me to hopefully change my opinion, how I think, and help me personally grow as we just as a country try and deal with these crazy times. So what is your involvement with the Black Lives Matter movement? Well, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter, the, the movement is not necessarily a, a particular organization. It's, it's simply a, a collection of people around the world that just really care about Black lives. So it's not, you know, necessarily, you know, this <laughs> organization where we have a set, you know, um, ideology that we follow and that everybody mm-hmm. has to do X, Y, and Z, but it really is just about uh, people around the world that, that just care about black lives existing and, and they want black lives to continue to exist and just bring in that awareness and, and letting other people know that might not necessarily understand that um, we, we just want to be able to coexist together and that we want to be able to be recognized and we want to live Uh, I mean, it definitely started out around um, police brutality, Mm -hmm. but there's so many issues to address when we talk about black lives now, not just the police brutality issue, but, you know, health care for black lives, um, having um, fresh foods for black lives, um, educational systems for black lives. We're disenfranchised so much when it comes um, to the resources that we have in our community that black lives is not just about police brutality anymore. Um, But at this point, it's really just educating people around the issues. Um, What I particularly do, I'm I'm not representing it from a legal perspective anymore because I don't practice law um, in Georgia. Um, Now I have my business architect firm, but now it's just really educating people on the issues and um, constantly letting them, constantly letting people know that 
um, the the issues of black people are important. Recently, actually, and I'm so glad, <laughs> um, Senator Leffler, she just was, you know, not elected as <laughs> the senator. Um, but I had my own personal um, confrontation with Senator Leffler. Now, when I when I first um, when I first heard of Senator Leffler, she was actually my my congressional representative. So she was having events in Georgia, and I really just wanted to to see how she felt about um, you know the about police brutality and, and protecting Black people to make sure that we weren't being murdered on the streets, right. whether it was by police officers or by um, citizens. So when we went to her event. All of a sudden, she started um, talking about, you know, how Black Lives Matter. We were um, anti-nuclear family, um, that we were Marxist, <laughs> that we were terrorists, um, and that uh, we were attacking. Um, like what she was talking about was the people at her event. She was like, you know, when they're coming after me, they're coming after you. They're attacking everyday people like you because they want to take what you have. And I was like, oh, my God, like I didn't even come here for this, but I, I really feel like she's mischaracterizing um, the what, what uh, people that support Black Lives Matter um, are really about. So, you know, I, I stood up and my, my comrade that was with me, Triana Arnold James, um, stood up with me as well. And literally, yep. like, we were <sighs> the only two Black people in the room, which really should have um, you know, raised some some red flags for us, but we were the only two black people in the room, um, with the exception she had her children there. So we were asking her questions about, okay, well, what are, you know, what are you going to do about the black lives that are being murdered? How are you going to p- protect black people? And she took that as an opportunity to continue to go in and to encourage the audience to do harm against us by telling them that we were a threat to them, that we were coming to take their everyday way of life. Um, and uh, at that point, like the audience started getting really, really mad. Like, so at first they was yelling, Kelly, 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 which I, you know, at that point I thought it was fine. They're just yelling, Kelly. Um, but then at some point they started um, yelling, um, all lives matter, all lives matter. So it was, a, it was directly in response um, to the things that, that Kelly Leffler was saying um, at her event. So they was yelling all lives and they was yelling it at us. They weren't just yelling it at general. Um, they started to actually surround us. Right. And they tried to lock arms at one point after they surrounded us. Um, but they tried to surround us and, and lock us in the room. Um, some people started to spit on us. Um, people started to push us um, to try to step on us. Um, they were doing all types of things just to um, to try, try to hurt us as much as possible. There were some officers there at the time, um, and there were some good officers and some bad officers. Um, the 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 good officers would, you know, they were like, hey, you know, they have a right to be here too. You know, you guys have to, you know, make sure that you're not trying to do anything right. to infringe on their constitutional rights. Mm-hmm. The bad officers were letting the people surround us and trying to lock us in the room um, and, and not trying to protect us at all, right? Even though we were like, hey, you know, we're here to just have a conversation with our senator, but you guys are making it um, seem as though we don't even have a right to have a conversation with the person that represents her. That's what this form is for, so that we can come and have a conversation with the person that represents us and ask her questions. So you guys are basically saying that simply because you think that we that we believe in different things. And I don't even think ultimately that we believe in different things. Um, I, I think that many of our goals are, are the same, but 
a lot of politicians try to try to use divisive language to make everybody mm-hmm. fear um, that 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 we're looking at or going for different things. Um, but you know, they it, it was a, it was a horrible experience. It was one of the scariest things that I've ever felt in the world. Like I literally felt like when I went outside that that something was going to happen to us. Um, by the time we did get outside, because they did, you know, they tried to block us into the room that we was in. Um, they ended up keying um, our car. Right. And I was like, oh, my, I can't believe that that people would would do this. And I can't believe that our senator, because she was the senator at the time. And this was just last year. I was like, I can't believe our senator would encourage other constituents to try to do harm for, to us. Um, even afterwards, I mean, at, even at the event, they were they were telling us basically that they should take us outside and shoot us just for showing up just for being present, just for saying that, hey, we support Black Lives Matter and we don't feel like that. I'm not a Marxist. I'm not a terrorist. You know, I believe in the nuclear families and I I support Black Lives Matter. Like, I believe that Black lives are important also. Um, You know, so it was it was a scary experience. And even after that, I mean, all on her social media, uh, there was people that were basically saying, shoot them, kill them, you know, take them out. And, you know, make sure that they don't pop back up, you know, and she and she did absolutely nothing to discourage it or to say, hey, you know, we don't want these these ladies murdered <laughs> because they believe um, that black lives matter also. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely think that um, there's a lot of misunderstanding and there is fear that is created um, by politicians mm-hmm. um, to benefit them. But I, I do think that ultimately a lot of times we're all working for the same thing still. No, I 100% agree with you there with the politicians being divisive. And that's on both sides of the aisle. You know, the more the more divided the politicians can make us, the more power they're going to have, at least in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you actually sat down, like if someone who is really, really diehard Black Lives Matter supporter, like an Antifa member or whatever, and they sat down with someone from the Proud Boys, or the Bugaloo Boys or whoever, they'd probably find they actually have a lot in common, more than they would actually think there's going to be a lot of key differences there a hundred percent don't get me wrong those are real issues but they're gonna find a lot of things they do disagree on agree on the things they agree on the politicians they don't want them to know they agree on but right. um and with with the constant theme of politicians like yeah Loeffler she is a terrible politician you know c- full of corruption I know her from her corruption from what I've heard from her th- since the runoff election um I didn't know much of that, so I'm very glad she is no longer a politician. But what's what this stems for me is this it's just it's poor leadership. It's poor leadership from our government and it's poor leadership just all on like you said it you said in the beginning of your of your answer that you know Black Lives Matter, it isn't an organization. It is it's just it's really it is an idea. And that idea is something everyone can probably should agree on. It's flat, it should agree on. But do you think the fact that it's not a actual organization there is no leaders like there is no one like a martin luther king or even a malcolm x at the helm do you think that hurts the movement i think that when i think that we've been conditioned um as a a society to believe that there has to be somebody in charge i I think that as very similar to uh ptsd we think that only one person can be at the top right um but i think the the root of what we want is for um, the people to be able to to decide and to dictate what issues are important. And I think that that um, is what we're trying to encourage in the Black Lives Matter movement is for the people 
um, to decide and dictate what is important to this moment instead of one particular person. I, I understand that. I definitely do understand that. Um, and there's plenty of room at the top, but I would, I would push back on that just a little bit saying like, right, if you had someone as a leader, someone who like someone who could go to if Joe Biden can said tomorrow, he's like, Hey, listen, I want to speak to someone um, about these issues. Someone from Black Lives Matter, come speak to me. We can talk and kind of figure out maybe some legislation. There'd be no one to send. You know what I mean? So it's like, how can you really get progress without that kind of strong leadership to really define the goals of what needs to be accomplished? Because a lot of goals do need to be accomplished, but it gets muddied. And even to go further on that, like you, you had all these riots over the summer, you know, even if they weren't part of Black Lives Matter, right? They were still out there screaming Black Lives Matter. Even if they were just a bunch of white people doing it, there's no one to say, listen, these people are not part of our movement. These people do not represent what we believe in. And that leads people at those Loft, that Loffler event to be like, listen, you, they, you get lumped in with the, the good apples, get lumped in with the bad apples. I understand that. I think that that's, you know, that's going to happen um, if, if a person is trying to uh, find out a way to be able to discredit a group that's going to happen regardless of whether there's a leader or not. Having a one person or one delegate to go and uh, represent a, a group as a whole is not going to change the public from trying to mischaracterize them. Mm-hmm. I think it becomes very um, dangerous, especially in communities of color, to try to say, hey, you know, we want one or two or three representatives to come and speak for all people of color because there's so much diversity even within our communities. Um, And the danger behind that is that, you know, that's what's been that's what has happened over generations and generations, you know, non people of color trying to get token people of color to come and speak for the entire group. Right. And, and and they'll never be able to speak for the entire group. Honestly, they can only speak for them. Um, I think the only way to really uh, make sure that our issues are being addressed in totality and not just one particular demographic or one particular token um, is to is to have the, the community as a whole decide and dictate what issues are important and not just one person trying to go um, and represent everybody as a whole. That's, I think that's really how, you know, black people have been, um, they've been drowned in, in the community of color language because there's tokens or one or two delegates or a few delegates that are coming, they're going to try to speak for all communities of color. And our issues are very different. And when we try to right. lump them in one leader or one delegate, a lot of people's issues are getting overlooked, which is why so many people are upset right now. Yeah, no, I know. I definitely, I definitely, I hear you on that. I 100% agree with you on that. Like, you know, who like, it would be like, who are you to speak for all of us? That that's totally, that's 100% valid. Um, and I cannot push back on that. So what do you think is next for the BLM movement? What, what is, what is the next three years going to look like? Well, I think that we're going to continue to address the issues that, that need to be addressed in our community. Um, we have a new, um, a new, we have new leaders in office right now. So um, the hope is that, you know, this new leadership is, is definitely going to address um, the issues of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, in particular, um, you know, I'm working with a, a delegate of, of powerful women around the country um, that are organizing the Protect Black Women movement. Um, we're organizing a, an event in, in 
and Atlanta um, within the next six months. But we're also organizing an, another March on Washington coming soon. The date is not finalized yet, but it's coming. I, I do think things like that will help. I also think conversations, dialogue is is most important. You need to have conversations. So how comfortable are you personally speaking to people who are just the complete opposite of you? Like how comfortable would you be speaking to someone who is a self-pronounced white supremacist? Or is that something you're just like, nope, not going to do that. That's not comfortable. It's not going to happen. <laughs> Because I can, I, I can understand if you're like, you know what? No, just not having it. <laughs> I'm, I'm completely okay with it, honestly. I mean, you know, I know some of my counterparts are all, they're like, they'll know. Yeah, that's not happening. You know, we're, we're not dealing with that. We're not dealing with bigotry. We're not dealing with foolishness, whatever the case may be. But I think these, these conversations are necessary. And mm-hmm. until we start having um, the in-depth conversations, then we're, we're not going, none of us are going to get on the, on the same page. You said it earlier and, you know, I echoed it when you said it is that um, a lot of our issues are very similar. Um, but because we have these, these poor leadership trying to tell us that we're, that we're divided and that our issues are different and that um, we're coming after each other. We never have the opportunity or the space to be able to converse together um, so that we can see how similar our platforms are. So I, I, I would always I'm always open to having conversations um, with people that might be in, in the Proud Boy movement or that might be like hardcore white supremacists or Trump supporters. I'm not going to let them know where I live at. No, no, of course not. <laughs> I'm not going to invite them to my house for coffee. No, you, you, you meet in a very you meet in a you meet in a, a agreed a mutually agreed upon location. <laughs> hundred percent. You know, so like, but I'm open to having the conversation. I mean, even right now, I, I do a, um, a conversation regularly. Um, it's an international tour called White Women, Can We Talk? Um, and it's where white women and black women, particularly black women, come together um, to have hard conversations and ask, the, um, ask each other the hard questions that we haven't been allowed to ask in our own communities because we've been afraid um, that we would get backlash from it. So uh, we, we tour around the country, uh, myself and Triana Arnold James. Triana Arnold James um, actually is, she's the Georgia president of the National Organization for Women. And uh, she started the White Women Can We Talk uh, movement a couple of years ago, but it was in the form that it is now, um, where she, when Trump originally got elected and she saw that 55% of white women actually voted for Trump, even after they saw all the things that he did to oppress white women, she was like, white women, can we talk? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because she wanted to get some more insight into what the decision making was. Um, and she came to me um, sometime later and she was like, you know, Salah, you organized um, the March for, for Women's Lives. Um, and um, I, you, you know, I, we toured around the country at the time. She was like, is there a way that we can combine um, these, two, these two projects, these two um, conversations and these two platforms? Um, so we, we joined forces and we created this national tour um, called White Women Can We Talk, where we have like hardcore conversations about the things that we need to have so that we can join together as a community, even past our differences, even past, you know, um, our our political um, affiliations, even past whether one person is proud boys or proud girls and one person is Black Lives Matter. Um, the the initial platform that we, we do it on is digital because of COVID. Um, 
And once we had the digital conversation, um, which generally, you know, is a few hours long, we, we um, extend the invitation to come to the city and workshop around these issues um, and have conversations uh, about uh, white supremacy um, in the Trump era and what that means. And just because Trump is not president anymore doesn't mean that white supremacy in the Trump era is over uh, because, you know, Trump being in office created this whole generation um, of people that now feel like they're justified in their oppression and their racism, even after he has been um, taken out of office. So it's definitely something that's going to continue that we have to have a conversation about and address. So um, after the, the digital platform, we actually go to the cities and workshop for either a weekend um, or five days, uh, white supremacy in the Trump era and how we can decode it and um, make sure uh, that it doesn't um, overwhelm our communities um, and so that we can get on the same on, on the same platform and the same accord together. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also been invited to recently for 2021, uh, we've been invited to Nigeria um, and London and Australia. So the white woman can we talk to is actually going to go international. Love it. Well, I'm, I'm so happy to hear that. I'm happy you have these conversations. And anytime someone is like an, an activist or um, specifically around around race, I have to ask them, do you know who Daryl Davis is? I don't. So Daryl Davis is actually a jazz musician, but what he really got famous for is he is famous for making countless numbers of Ku Klux Klan members leaving the Klan. And he is this, an African-American jazz musician who just sat down, talked with them, didn't even like convince them to leave. They just did it on their own because he got to know them. He got to talk to them. He got to realize who they are as people. And they literally gave him their robes. So he has a collection of Klansman robes from people he got to leave the Klan. Um, so people like him are some, in my opinion, the most influential people on the planet today, at least in America when it comes to these issues. But he gets pushback because people call him a white supremacist. They call him a Nazi. They, they criticize him for giving these people a platform. So what is your response to, to what I'm going to call nonsense? That is just complete nonsense to me. What is your response that, you know, people get people on the left get criticized for going on Fox News or people on the right get criticized for going on MSNBC. What is your response to like just nonsense like that? Or do you even think it's not nonsense? Do you think there's some validity to that? I, I, I don't agree. I absolutely think that we need to have conversations. I, I don't know much about. Um, Daryl Davis, but I'm actually going. I'm I'm definitely going to research him when I get off because I like that idea of of just doing this uh, this national platform of getting people to turn in their clans robes. I, I think that's a beautiful concept. I could actually, I, I, you know, I'm a poet also, so I could actually write a whole poem on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, he he like, did he did like a three hour interview on Joe Rogan, like I think last year. I'll send you the link, and uh, he always also appeared on the Jimmy Dore show recently on YouTube. I'll send you links to that as well. He is. I, I love this man. I, I talk about bucket list. I want to talk to this guy one day. Um, yeah. I really think stuff like that is so important. But I guess a final talking point I actually want to hit upon with, with it, putting these conversations in jeopardy is corporate censorship. Um, you know, with the, with the events that happened at the Capitol, you know, Trump got banned from Twitter. For the record, I completely support Donald Trump being banned from Twitter because he <laughs> he incited violence. He broke his First Amendment rights, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. But now we're seeing corporate censorship 
on social media where people just cannot have a voice either left or right. And it's happening a lot on the right-hand side of politics, but it's also happening on the left. Antifa followers um, on Twitter with 71,000 followers, they got deplatformed. Like the left, leftist po- political podcast, whatever, they get deplatformed. Um, Brett Weinstein, we talked about on my podcast multiple times, him and his brother had a coalition called like the Unity Commission where they was like, hey, listen, Biden's not a good candidate. Trump's not a good candidate. Let's find a third option. And Twitter banned them for like political meddling. So what what is what is your take on social media companies just silencing voices, no matter what they say, just the idea of corporate censorship? Where do you land on that? My goodness. You know, I, I actually experienced that myself quite a bit um, with, with social media, some of these platforms, um, Twitter. Instagram and Facebook, they all, you know, anytime I use the word black in my post, mm-hmm. they will flag me down. Um, even if I, you know, or, or an ad, if I, if I use the word black in an ad or African-American, they will flag it. Um, and at one point they actually deactivated my, my account um, because they said that I was using political language. <laughs> which yeah. I, I was like, okay, and let me tell I, you, I don't, I've never met you before, but after speaking to you for an hour, you should absolutely 100% not be deplatformed from any social media post ever. It's just, that's just, uh, that's just absolutely ridiculous. And, and it's, it stunts growth. It stops progress. It does. It does. I was like, what? Like, just because, I, you know, I, if I say something like, oh, you know, black women are doing X, Y, and Z, let's celebrate them or something like that, you know, I'm, I'm getting deactivated. Wow. Like, it, it was amazing to me um, that, um, you know, now that you, you can get banned and kicked off of platforms just for even acknowledging um, your blackness, you know, so I can imagine what other people are going through if, if I can get deactivated or banned or kicked off of social media just for acknowledging my blackness, you know, not even making the political statement, but just for acknowledging blackness in general, um, then I know that other people are going through uh, uh, horrific experiences with being um, silenced. Um, There is a a movement um, around creating um, this new generation of of what they call B-suite executives and B-suite corporations. Mm-hmm. And as a B-suite corporation, basically, you know, corporations are taking um, pledges to be socially responsible. So they would actually have to go through a certification process. They go through an audit of their company. Um, they make pledges um, around um, diversity and social responsibility, and they have to take action um, to make sure that they are consistently socially responsible. So I think that encouraging corporations on a international level as well as a national level um, to be a part of this movement is definitely a first step in getting more corporate responsibility and, and making sure that corporations are not silencing um, the citizens that they're supposed to be working for. Mm-hmm. And to anyone out there who champions corporate censorship, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna ask you a question real quick. Just this to the to, to, to the vague you, um, systematic racism is definitely a thing that exists in this country still in 2021. And I'm just gonna ask you if you truly believe that still exists, and if Twitter, YouTube, all these social media companies were a thing in the 60s, who do you think would have been the first one to be silenced? Mm. Mm-mm-mm. Yep, that's absolutely that's that's absolutely true, I, and I love that. You know, we so we definitely have to make sure that we're uniting on the national front to prevent corporations from silencing 
the communities that need to be heard. Right. And whenever yeah. whenever I speak about this, I have to make blatantly clear that, listen, I do not support Proud Boys, like Parler or Rumble, whatever those crazy, like, right-wing people post on there. I don't agree with the context of what they are saying, but I will defend their right to say it because if they can say it, that means I can say what I need to say. And if you can't say what you need to say, nothing is going to change. And we need That's change. Right. We need right. We need change. And I, I truly think um, that even just, just this podcast, I think people will resonate well with it. I think some people will probably come after us, to be honest, because <laughs> they, they always do. That's just what happens. The bigger you grow, the more crap you got to deal with. Um, but would you ever think about starting a podcast? To really, to really voice your opinions out there because I've been podcasting for six years now and the main reason I do it today, people's like, why do you love doing it? Will, you host three podcasts. Why do you do that? It's for personal growth. That's really the real answer. This, this podcast in particular, the You Mad Bro, what you do is politics is really for personal growth. Um, and then the wrestling ones is for fun. I've done that forever. But really it's for personal growth. So I, I really think you would be incredible having your own podcast. I think it'd be really successful. Thank you. I, I received that. I definitely received that. Yes. Yes, I would. I would definitely consider that. Absolutely. All right. Well, if you do, you know, the first person to come to uh, <laughs> Madam Ward, I want to thank you so much for being here on this show. Um, I, I really did enjoy this. Um, like I say, I podcast for personal growth and I've definitely learned a few things from this conversation that I'm not going to soon forget. So I want to thank you again for your time. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to come back and talk to you again. Maybe one day you can bring a proud boy on and we can have a conversation. Oh God, I got to meet one first. Yeah, there is definitely a slew of topics we could go on and on and on and on about. So we will definitely have to do a sequel in the coming months as things unfold. But please, if someone wants to get in touch with you, contact you, where can I find you on social media? If you have a website, anything you want to plug, the floor is yours. Absolutely. Thank you. So um, you can always reach me on my website. My my firm's website is www.ninavafirm.com, which is N-I-N-A-V-A-F-I-R-M.com, ninavafirm.com. Um, there's a, uh, a place up there where you can book consultations. If you have any questions about your business, about expanding, uh, about um, operational infrastructures, I'd love to have a conversation about you. The consultations are absolutely free. Um, or if you just want to throw some ideas out there, you can also reach me on social media. My social media is Salal ward fan page on on facebook um and so i'll ward everywhere else and my name is spelled a little bit differently the n is silent everybody confuses it but it makes them remember it in the end so um my name is spelled n like nancy s-e-l-a-a last name ward w-a-r-d so you can find me at salah ward on instagram salah ward on twitter salah ward on on linkedin and salah ward on facebook and i'm always open to conversations all right, ladies and gentlemen, that was Madam Sella Ward, an incredible career, and I have a feeling she is just getting started. If you like this podcast and you want to hear more podcasts like it, head over to ambiguouspodcastsolutions.com, where we have a slew of original podcasts. Of course, the flagship Ambiguous Podcast Solutions, where we talk, sit down, either myself, our head of marketing, Jared Laverne, or our director of operations, Nash Moore, sits down with podcasters to talk about their experience, their drive, and their journey, and everything and anything in between. Also, my other podcast, You Mad Bro, which is um, all about politics or whatever the internet is mad about in that given week. So it's always a blast. Um, 
Everything else is there. If you have a podcast and need help, you want to reach out to us for help, head over to biggestpodcast.com or shoot me an email at will at APSpodcast.com. If you want me to interview about your podcast or anything in particular, shoot me an email. I would love to talk to you. But until then, we'll be back next time with a brand new guest, a brand new host, possibly. And until then, you take care and remember, Keep the conversation going. It is the most important thing for change. It's the reason why it's the First Amendment. It's the reason why they wrote it down first. But until then, everyone have a good night and take care.